Vultures flying high above the earth, eating roadkill, turning death into rebirth. Vultures are recyclers, eating the dead. They are very hip, even though their necks are red. You're listening to the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast, an exploration of political ideas, political reality, and political possibilities, a show about the opportunities for change and improvement in the American political system and the obstacles to achieving them. The Applied Political Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by the students and professor in PS419, Political Reform, a political science class at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. All content is the opinion of the individual creators and not of the professor, the university, or the political science department. Hell, they might not even represent the real opinions of their creators. This series is an exploration and a provocation, an incitement to consider the present state and future possibilities of political reform in America. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. Thank you for listening. I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities of tomorrow. Citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more. Applied political philosophy. Our first episode begins philosophically, discussing the theoretical roots of reform proposals and looking at how political reform movements begin. I'm Nigel Wilkerson, correspondent for the Applied Political Philosophy podcast. I'm sitting down with Dr. Jack Miller today to discuss the philosophical side of political reform. Thank you for speaking with me, Dr. Miller. Happy to be here, Nigel. Why don't you begin by discussing the role democratic theory plays in the political reform process? Well, democratic theory is basically concerned with positing which values are essential to democracy and working out how to manifest these values in the design of a democratic political system. There's fairly widespread agreement among contemporary democratic theorists what the fundamental values are, though of course there are big disagreements about how to prioritize these values when they conflict with each other. But starting from a list of recognized fundamental principles such as popular sovereignty, political equality, representative responsiveness, accountability, etc., etc., Democratic theories posit various processes and institutions, ways of defining offices and designing selection mechanisms for those offices, that sort of thing. Political forms that are supposed to manifest these values more or less effectively. And that's how democratic theory moves along, by taking these values and extending it to the kinds of political reforms that democratic theorists think would best manifest those underlying values. You say there's fairly widespread agreement about what these values are. I don't imagine that's always been the case. No, you're right. The list of, quote, accepted democratic values has expanded and changed a bit over the centuries. The classic democratic theorists like Montesquieu and Madison focused on what we might think of as formal values like majority rule, separation of powers, limited government, and checks and balances, that sort of thing. Their primary concern was empowering the people, but at the same time preventing a tyranny of majority. Throughout the 19th century, as more theoretical work was done on the question of what democracy really was, and as more thinkers with different experience got involved, and with more actual experience watching modern democratic practice, as well as democratic reform movements, focus was increasingly placed on issues of political equality, voting rights, electoral competitiveness, representative responsiveness, and the public good. The progressive era of the late 19th and early 20th centuries brought a greater concern to new questions that came out of uh, concerns about corruption, so accountability, transparency, and access to power. 
In more recent decades, significant attention has been brought to bear on what we might think of as outcome values, equity and inclusion, quality of deliberation, civility of discourse, and the sustainability of the democratic system itself. So the list of values has grown over the centuries, which also means potential conflicts and different ways of prioritizing conflicting values. Dealing with that is a big part of what's going on in the area of democratic theory today. From the point of view of political reformers, though, working with this large and diverse set of democratic principles gives you a pretty useful toolkit for judging and critiquing existing practices. And there is no shortage of targets for criticism using these values. Legislative determination of district election maps, aka gerrymandering, the first past the post election system, otherwise known as winner take all, the use of anti democratic mechanisms like the filibuster, lifetime appointments to the judiciary, and on and on. There's really no shortage of attacks or criticisms of our political system. Can you give me an example of how this works? How political reformers take up the ideas of democratic theorists and make use of them concretely? Of course, uh, take the value of electoral competitiveness, the idea that elections should feature real competition among the candidates and parties vying for political power. This can be used to critique the first-past-the-post system, particularly when it's combined with partisan primaries as it is in the United States. It's widely recognized among political scientists that this electoral form actually reduces rather than optimizes competitiveness. It promotes a two-party rather than a multi-party system, which certainly attenuates voter choice, and the natural distribution of political demographics, even without gerrymandering, produces a large number of safe seats for one or the other of these two parties. And the standard result is what we have in the U.S. Congress, where the incumbent re-election rate is typically 85% or higher, despite the fact that congressional approval ratings are historically well below 50%. Additionally, all or nearly all of the seats are held by members of one of the two major parties, even though solid majorities of Americans, generally well over 60%, express the desire for viable third parties to provide alternatives to the Democrats and Republicans who they feel virtually monopolize political power in America. We clearly don't have a system that manifests a high or even decent level of political competitiveness, and that's not even considering the way that the U.S. system impugns other values like representative responsiveness and majority rule. Okay, so critics use the consensus standards of democratic theory to point out problems with an existing democratic system. The value of competitiveness, in your example, is used to critique the first-past-the-post system. What's the next stage in the process of getting from philosophical ideas to political reform movements? Right, yeah, well, the next stage is to figure out how to elevate the offended value. In the case of my example, what might produce a greater level of competitiveness? In the early stages of democratic theory, back in the early 19th century, there weren't any alternatives to the familiar district-based winner-take-all electoral system that we've had in the United States since pretty much the beginning. The delegates to the Constitutional Convention, for instance, didn't have a menu of options for devising a competitive electoral system, and honestly, they were probably more concerned with maintaining the status quo that gave them power than they were in manifesting competitiveness. But even if they had been interested in competitiveness, there hadn't been any theoretical work done to expand the menu of options for electoral forms beyond just that one winner-take-all system. They did get pretty creative when it came to devising the Electoral College. I mean, they weren't thrilled with the available limited menu of options for selecting a president, but they didn't extend the creativity they used there to other kinds of elections, for example, for congressional elections. So the next stage is really brainstorming, thinking up ways to do things differently when you're dissatisfied with the limited menu of options. At this point in history that we're living in right now, there's been a lot of creative brainstorming, and the menu of options for democratic forms is much, much larger than it was 200 years ago. So what happens now, and what's been happening for well over a century, is that would-be reformers go to this expanded menu of options, sometimes adding new ideas, like star voting, that does happen, and they analyze how well and how poorly the different alternatives might improve upon the offended value. Competitiveness, for example, is significantly enhanced by the system of proportional representation that was first developed in the mid-19th century. 
So political reformers often point to the PR system as a superior form of legislative action. And now there are plenty of countries that use proportional representation where we can point to them and say, uh, for example, this produces a higher level of competition and the people in these democratic countries are much more satisfied with the outcome. Campaign finance restrictions are another example. Uh, There was just no consideration of limiting money in politics at the very beginning. And in any electoral system, competitiveness is reduced by disparities in wealth and the advantage this gives to certain kinds of candidates or parties. The idea of limiting the role of money in politics owes its existence to progressive era critiques and the brainstorming that progressives did about what kind of new laws they could devise that would reduce the role of money in politics. It seems pretty obvious to us now that you limit donations and spending, but that idea had to be invented, and it was invented about 120 years ago. So how do these practices of democratic theory and political critique give birth to actual political reform movements? I would say it's a pretty organic transition from brainstorming to movement politics. If you've got a problem with something, and there's an alternative that seems like it would fix the problem, some people are bound to organize around one or more of those alternatives, and that's how political reform movements are born. Of course, at that point, the challenge is to find a way to win, right? And that's a whole other issue and a very, very challenging issue that moves well beyond democratic theory into the idea of political strategy. Thank you for sitting down with me today. I appreciate all of your thoughts, and I hope to speak to you again sometime. Of course, anytime. English philosopher John Stuart Mill was one of the most influential thinkers of the 19th century. His treatise on democratic theory, Considerations on Representative Government, first published in 1861, just as the American Civil War was beginning, addressed a wide range of issues related to establishing a modern democratic system. Many of Mill's ideas went against the prevailing ideas of his day and remain unrealized even now. For example, his opposition to party primaries. But he put a lot of thought into his proposals, and his arguments bear close attention as a critical standard for judging present-day democratic norms. His vote is not a thing in which he has an option. It has no more to do with his personal wishes than the verdict of a juryman. It is strictly a matter of duty. He is bound to give it according to his best and most conscientious opinion of the public good. Whoever has any other idea of it is unfit to have the suffrage. Those are the words of John Stuart Mill, writing about the duty of voters in a representative democracy. Mill's assertion that the franchise was a public trust, not an individual right, went against the dominant view in the United States, at the time, and even more so today. In the American political culture, the vote has always been considered an individual right that citizens possess to express and advocate for their interests and values. Even more controversially, Mill advocated for the ballot to be exercised publicly, not cast in secret, as the most likely mechanism for ensuring that citizens would exercise their duty as voters in the public interest. Here again are Mill's words. The voter is under an absolute moral obligation to consider the interest of the public, not his private advantage, and give his vote to the best of his judgment exactly as he would be bound to do if he were the sole voter and the election depended upon him alone. This being admitted, the duty of voting, like any other public duty, should be performed under the eye and criticism of the public, every one of whom has not only an interest in its performance, but a good title to consider himself wronged if it is performed otherwise than honestly and carefully. The idea behind this is that declaring to their fellow citizens how they are voting would induce people to act in the public interest rather than in furtherance of their private interests. Mill didn't consider the potential for peer pressure or groupthink, or perhaps he considered it but felt that the benefits of the public ballot would outweigh its risks. Nor did he consider that in a powerfully individualist political culture such as the American one, even a public declaration of one's vote wouldn't induce people to consider the common good. Despite Mill's advocacy, the secret ballot is the norm for elections in democratic countries, but there are a few notable exceptions worth considering. 
Legislative bodies frequently employ the roll call vote, a public declaration of a representative's choice, and the effect is exactly as Mill described. Representatives must face their fellow members and fellow citizens and declare their vote for all to hear. In the case of elected representatives, the idea that their vote is supposed to be in pursuit of the public interest is less controversial, though there is an opposing theory, the delegate conception of representation, which posits that elected officials are merely a pass-through for the interests and values of their constituents. Even in this case, though, the public ballot has a purpose, albeit a different one, to reassure constituents that their representatives are in fact voting in the interests of those they represent. The roll call vote, however, is cumbersome and time-consuming and is used in legislative bodies in the United States only rarely, when one or the other parties wants every representative to have to go on public record for a potentially controversial vote. Frequent use of a motion for the yeas and nays to be called would undoubtedly please Mill, who would probably say that it should always be used, even and especially when the representatives themselves don't want to. Another form of public voting also infrequently used is the primary caucus, a form of public voting used by a small number of states to select their party's presidential nominees. In a caucus, voters actually gather in a public place such as a school gymnasium and express their preference by physically gathering under the banner of a particular candidate. Typically, there are multiple rounds of physical balloting, with representatives of the various candidates moving among the groups, attempting to convince voters to switch. While this process does tend to favor candidates whose supporters are highly motivated, as well as available to participate in this often hours-long process, a set of factors that is not particularly inclusive, it is not only fully public the way Mill envisioned, it's interactive and deliberative, democratic values that Mill would have supported. If we believe with Mill that voting should express our, quote, most conscientious opinion of the public good, unquote, we should look for more opportunities to employ public voting instead of the secret ballot, perhaps being mindful of processes that are exclusionary, like the primary caucus.